Revelation 8, verses 1 to 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, good morning, everybody. It's doing well. Join this night, bright, bright sunshine, nice warm day. If we were outside, I was going to draw your attention to the uh, the playset. If you were looking at the stage, it would have been to your right over in our backyard. You might see that there's a couple of odd colored slats in the uh, in the roof there because we're trying to fix it up just a little bit. So I was replacing some of the slats in the roof. Joe actually came over, put helped put the, a, a nice new ramp on there, so that's nice and sturdy. Kids can go on that. Not not sure I would trust the roof just yet. Who knows? But anyway, so that, that was a couple of days ago. We were doing that. And at the end of the day, I took up all the wood from the old ramp that was there and from the old slats that were uh, in the in the roof and made a nice big fire out in the backyard in the evening. And as this fire is roaring, right, we're looking at the fire. And, and as you know, like with fire, there's, there's multiple things going on here. Right? First of all, there's wood that's being burnt down, being destroyed. Uh, another thing that's happening is there's all these... Uh, old screws and nails that are coming out as the wood is being burnt down, right? The wood was rotted. The screws were old, so I couldn't back them out with a, a drill or anything like that. So you just put it in the fire, and you come back in. We'll rake it up or shovel it all out, all these extra screws and things. So that's happening. There's uh, man, there's all the smoke and smells that are coming from. It's lighting up the backyard. It's even a pretty big fire going at this point. It didn't bother to cut down some of these slats. Right, so the fire's roaring, and it's got a nice heat radius going around. Right, so there's heat coming off of this. Uh, if we lived someplace other than Wallingford, <laughs> and there were rabid predators in the pine trees to the side, right, maybe uh, the fire would be keeping us safe because the predators would be staying back because of this fire. Right, so fire does a variety of different things. Same thing throughout the Bible. Fire is an image that uh, conveys. Right, purifying action, destroying action. Uh, it is uh, some, an image that conveys light and warmth and even protection at certain places. And I saw this because in our passage today, I feel like we've got a couple uh, images that we're going to talk through. There's really just one main theme, uh, one main message that I kind of want to highlight. It's a very simple theme and message, though I think it's a pretty poignant one. Uh, and I think that this sort of this image of fire is what connects the whole things together. Uh, it's fire that erupts the incense into this plume of smoke around the throne, which itself is fire as of the sun burning at full strength. And then there's fire that's taken from the golden altar and cast down upon the earth. All right, so our goal this morning is just to talk through these images and see the message that uh, the writer would have for us. And if by chance, okay, so if you're, you're new with us this morning, we're working our way through the book of Revelation. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is it gives us God's word in a variety of formats and genres, right? We have God's word that comes to us in, in poetry, 
or wisdom literature. God comes to a word comes to us in stories or histories or love letters or letters written to churches, right? And God's word comes to us sometimes just in raw images. This is what apocalyptic literature is. Uh, apocalyptic literature, when you think apocalyptic literature, you're maybe thinking end of the world type stuff, which it doesn't include that, but apocalyptic, apocalypto in the Greek simply means to reveal, right? So it's images that are intended to reveal some of the deeper hidden things that are going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain in life. And as we've been talking about, it's looking at those deeper things behind the curtain of life in this span of time between the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago at Easter, which really we celebrate every Sunday, and the second coming of Jesus when he will finish his work of redemption and renewal, a new creation. All right, in the book of Revelation, again, this is just sort of recap here, gives us multiple pictures, multiple glimpses at that span of time, and they usually come in sequences of seven. All right, so we're just now finishing up this first sequence of seven seals, right? Not seals. I see some some strange seal people here. No longer seals anymore, but not not those seals. Uh, but seals that were had kept this scroll closed, right? Seals that were closing this scroll, which contains the purposes of God's of God for history. Right, And so we're coming up to the end of these seals, and as these seals have been popped open, and there's been a whole lot of dramatic action that's come out. First seal is popped open. Out comes the white horse, right, with given authority to conquer, to seize lands and territory and people and nations. Second seal is open, and out comes a, a rider on a red horse uh, who's given permission to take away peace from the earth and cause the inhabitants of the earth to rise up in war and violence against one another. Which, when you think about it, and we've talked about this, could be a way that of summing up history, right? You could look back at history as the story of nations and kingdoms and kings conquering, engaging in warfare and violence. Third seal pops open, out comes a rider on a black horse, and we see these scales, like you would see in a marketplace where you put your grains and your vegetables or your bread or whatever on the one side of the scale, and it goes down, and so you put some weights in the other side of the scale to bring it up to find out how much you owe for this food, right? But we're finding out that in this, man, the cost of the bare essentials, your food, your grains, are going through the roof, roof, full, full day's wage for your common, ordinary worker, the bare necessities for your, your common people, while the more luxurious items like oil and wine, well, we're just leaving that alone. That's staying at, you know, it's normal price. Uh, fourth seal is opened. Out comes a rider and a pale horse. And there's this trail of death and destruction behind him. The fifth seal pops open, and we see the souls of those who have been slain because of their testimony to Jesus, crying out in front of the altar, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you judge the earth and avenge the wrong that's been done to us? which sort of gets an answer in the sixth seal, where the sun and the moon go dark, stars fall out in heaven, for the great day of the Lord has come. Okay? So when you come to the seventh seal and we pop this baby open, we're expecting, okay, there's going to be some dramatic action here because the great day of the Lord has come. Here it goes. It's all about to go down. And instead, what you have is just silence. 
right? And it's this odd silence for a couple of reasons. It's odd, again, because there's so much drama that's happening with the opening of these seals that when you come to the seventh climactic seal and this thing pops open, you're expecting there's going to be real action here. It's just whoosh, silence. Or it's odd a little bit, too, because uh, up to this point in the book of Revelation, anytime we're in the throne room, it's been noisy in there. Right? It's been full of praises, shouts of celebration from the four living creatures and the angels and the elders and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation singing their praise and their shouts of celebration. So it's just odd that we come to the seventh scene and it's just silent for a period of time. Right? You've got to put yourself in there. You've got to imagine John sitting there watching this, seeing all this action unfold, and then just looking around while everybody's just silent. Okay, so what's the deal with the silence? There's a couple ways you could look at this. Uh, you could look at it as a sort of a reverential silence. You know, that the great God, the one who's seated on the throne and the Lamb, right? they are coming. Because he is getting off of his throne and he is coming in the great day of the Lord, there is just like this hush of silence as the Holy One descends to his creation. Or it could be, you know, along similar lines that maybe, you know, the host of heaven, the angels, the elders, the four living creatures, right? They've seen this before. They've seen where God has come and he has, you know, tamed the chaotic barrenness and he has, you know, restrained the water so that the dry land would appear. And he's flooded the waters and the land and the seas with life, you know, beautiful life, right? And so they've seen this before before, and how beautiful it is. And so they're like maybe waiting in silence as he comes again to tame the chaotic elements of his creation so that new life and new creation can flourish once again. Or maybe they remember when God came and delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And he put the Egyptians' gods to, to open shame and the power structures of Egypt to shame with those ten plagues. And then he led them out into their you know wonderful new life. Maybe, again, the host of heaven knows that something like this is coming again. And so they're just kind of hushed in anticipation. Kind of like when you go to, I don't know if you've ever been to like a symphony orchestra concert and, you know, and the auditorium's a buzz, everybody's chattering and talking, getting their seats and everything like that. And then the instrumentalists come out onto the stage and the conductor comes out and he lifts his hands. And just as he lifts his hands to get ready, boom, there's like this hush of anticipation as you're waiting for what's going to come. And actually, you know, if you've ever been to one of those concerts, you know, maybe you get this 45-minute magnum opus symphony, right? And at the end of it, you know, as it comes to its rousing climax, then it, like it, it ends, like maybe just like the, the conductor, as he's closing the piece, like he'll just let his hands linger there for just a minute before he lowers them and the place erupts in applause, right? Like in the presence of something beautiful, magnificent, oftentimes there's just a silence. Okay, so that's, that could be part of it. That could be what this is. But actually, I think it's a little bit some, something different. Uh, a lot of the commentators will talk about how in the Jewish tradition, a tradition that John, the writer, would have been very familiar with, and a tradition that any Jewish reader would have been very familiar with too, uh, was this traditional belief that the angels and the elders and the host of heaven were loud with their praises in the evening and through the night, but during the day they were quiet 
so that the prayers of God's people could be heard. And I actually think that's probably the, well, if, I, if you ask me today, I would say that that's probably the indication of the silence here, partly because this is the main action of the passage. God's prayers are, are the people, the prayers of God's people are ascending before the throne. And so I think that's part of what's going on here is that there is this hush, there is this silence so that the prayers of God's people might be heard. Which is pretty cool when you think about it. Sorry, now I can wave my hands with vigor if I want to. <laughs> no. Right, so the silence so you can hear the prayers of God's people, is, it's kind of a cool picture to think about. It's a little bit odd. Again, because when you think of being in the throne room, like you think it should be everything that we've seen in the throne room thus far, right? We've seen the shouts of praise and the shouts of celebration, right? The people gathered around the throne in chapter 4 saying, uh, worthy are you, the one seated on the throne, to receive honor and glory because you created all things and by your will they were created and they have their existence. Or to the Lamb, worthy are you to receive power and glory and wisdom and might because by your blood you ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and made them a kingdom and priests, servants to our God. Or even, was it last week, right, when we saw the people who had been safely shepherded through the passages of death and now are standing with their washed linens, standing before the throne, and they're crying out, Salvation belongs to our God, who's seated on the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the living creatures and all the elders and all the heavenly hosts join in and say, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and might and power and glory and thankfulness be unto our God forever and ever. Right? That's what you expect in this throne room. Instead, we've got this silence so that God can hear the prayers of his people. Which, by the way, would have been really odd, too, in the ancient world. Uh, in the ancient world, the gods were, I don't know, these ego-maniacal beings <laughs> that were all into their praises and receiving adulation from the people. They were not the type to put their egos down and stop the praises, call for a cease to the praises, so that they may listen to the prayers of their people. But this is a different God. This is a God who is very concerned about the minds, the hearts, the emotions, the sentiments, the pleas of his people. Which, think about it, this would be a really encouraging image to the ancient church. This ancient church, which is starting to feel the squeeze and the pressure from the Roman Empire or from the religious establishment, or as the machines of oppression and persecution are starting to wound up and, and rage against the church, and as the church is weak and helpless and has no voice and has no vote and, and wonders if anybody sees, if anybody hears their cries, if anybody cares, here's this message God has called for silence so that he may hear the cries of his people. You know, I think you and I as well too, right? It's the longing of every human heart to be, to be known, to be seen, to be understood, to be heard. You've maybe experienced the frustration of being in a long conversation with somebody, and then at the end of the day when you're going home from the conversation wondering, I don't know if that person heard me. I don't even know if that person cared to hear me or understand who I was. Right? Isn't this a significant thing that the God of all creation, 
The one who flung the stars into space, the one who pulled the waters together, caused the dry land to appear, caused life to flourish. This God, magnificent in his holiness, like has this deep desire, not only to be to know his people, to be present with his people, but to hear his people. I think this validates the dignity of his people, that God is concerned to understand their thoughts, their heart, their feelings, right? Your thoughts matter to God. Your feelings matter to God. Your sentiments, your pleas, your cries, these matter to the living God. So again, I think that's part of a cool picture, but the the picture actually gets uh, even better when this angel comes and he's got this golden censer, which would have been a, you know, like a golden tray or, you know, a dish of some sort or almost like a shovel, well, not a shovel, like the end of a shovel type thing, right? And it's full of incense, and sort of the picture is that in the one hand, he's got all the prayers of the saints. And on the other hand, he's got this golden incense, uh, this golden censer full of incense. And he walks up to the altar, the golden altar, which would have its fire blazing on the top. You got your coals, you got your wood burning up there, right? And he takes the prayers and he takes the incense and he, and he dumps it onto the fire. And whoosh, now there's this big cloud of smoke and incense that's just engulfing the throne room. And it's like one of those old cartoon scenes where the magician takes certain powder or dust and throws it onto a fire. Right, that's sort of the picture here. I wish we could have reenacted that, got some fire and threw some incense with some little salt on there that, you know, makes the thing, right? Okay, but so just imagine if you're, if you're in there, right? Now all of a sudden you see this pillar of, you know, this cloud of smoke filling the room and ah, you can smell the pleasing aroma of these spices filling the air. Now, the other thing when we were when I was working on the uh, the place it out there, it was a nice day outside. I figured it's going to be outside for most of the day. So it's a great day to fire up the smoker, <laughs> right? So I threw some uh, chicken and some ribs on the smoker, and so all day there's this uh, smell of chicken and ribs and cherry wood just kind of filling the air. So it was just such a pleasant day. It was outside. The sun was shining. I was exercising some manliness out there, which uh, is not that common. And uh, I was working on the thing. And, and, and I'm smelling this smell all day long, being these great reminders of what's coming for dinner. right? And I have that as sort of the sense of in the throne room, right? That is, the incense falls on the flames and it erupts in this pillar Smoke and incense, right? It's a pleasing aroma. It's a pleasing smell, right? So the picture here is not only God leaving space so that he can hear the prayers of the saints, right? But the prayers of his people are pleasing to him, right? As the incense is mixed all up with it and is now engulfing the throne, right? This is something, it's, it's a pleasing aroma to him, right? It's not, uh, you know, God up there saying, oh, here comes Toby Schmidt again. and. Uh, we got to quiet down so we can hear the prayers of people. And here comes Toby, and he's probably, you know, going to talk about this math test that he has coming up tomorrow. And, man, he could use God help for that because it's going to be a hard test. And though we had all weekend to study for it, it was the NFL draft. And so we had to see who the Eagles were going to draft. And so he really didn't get a chance to study, and now he's in a, you know, and so we got to listen to this prayer. Or it's not the prayer, or it's not God up there, you know, bemoaning the fact, okay, here comes so-and-so with their woe-is-me prayers again about how, you know, Life is so hard and difficult, and you know, we've heard this a million times, or whatever. Right? Or it's not God coming, you know, saying, oh, we got to listen to this guy who barely can put his words together and stream coherent thoughts, and i got to sit and listen to him stumble through. No, right? 
right? It's a God who desires to hear the prayers, right? That this prayer, the picture here is this prayer is this fragrant offering that is pleasing in the sight of God. It's pleasing even though it comes from weak, stammering lips. It's pleasing even though it comes from, from sinners, right? That's the other picture here, right? It's not you know, uh, God's people who have somehow gotten their act together and cleaned things up, and now they've earned the rights and privileges to come before the throne and present their prayers and their concerns to him. No, but these are the people, messed up sinners for whom the lamb came and laid down his life. Right? Sinners who day in and day out wrestle with fear and insecurities are constantly tempted to compromise their faithfulness and their witness to Christ. Right? It's these sinners who are, whose prayers are filling the throne room with a fragrant offering. Right, it's the prayers of David, the adulterer, and the murderer. It's the prayers of Peter, the denier, or Thomas, the doubter, or Paul, the persecutor. Or again, it's the prayers of the ancient church. And all of their fear, anxiety, and their temptation. It's the prayers of you and me. Right? And our weaknesses, our struggles, even our sinful moments. And, and I guess I'm sort of stressing this point. Because if by chance you're anything like me, one of the greatest uh, barriers to my prayer life is a sense of guilt and shame. If I know it's been a particularly uh, unvictorious week where I've indulged in my sinful nature more so, and I'm just mindful of that, I feel the weight of guilt and shame on that, uh, I, whatever, the assumption is where the default assumption tends to be that why would God want to listen to me? Why would God want to even see me in his presence or whatever? So maybe I'll just take some time. Maybe I'll try to get on a good streak again, try to clean things up a little bit so I'm a little bit more presentable, and then I can come before the Lord and enter, enter my prayer. In other words, again, genuinely so, one of the greatest inhibitors to my prayer life is an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. That will keep me, whatever, going on my own. So you just need to see this wonderful picture. That the desperate sinners for whom the Lamb died, these weak, stammering fools who have no voice otherwise but are trying to mutter together the thoughts of their minds or the feelings of their hearts or whatever, and present, all of these men have got space before the throne and, and God is delighting in them. They are a pleasing aroma to him. Now, the old hymn that came to mind when I was thinking about this was actually one that we don't sing very often. We we're going to bring it around back darn Lent, but uh, we didn't, but that's uh, the song, Come boldly before the throne of grace. You wretched sinners, come. Maybe it doesn't make too much of an appearance because it's a little bit offensive. I don't know why. But come boldly before the throne of grace. You wretched sinners, come and lay your load at Jesus' feet and plead what he has done. But how can I come? Some soul may say, I'm lost and cannot walk. My guilt and sin have shut my mouth. I sigh, but I, bear, I dare not talk. The song goes on, come boldly through the throne of grace, though lost and blind and lame. Jehovah is the sinner's friend and ever was the same. And so the closing verse, ye bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within, come boldly before the throne of grace, for the Lord will take you in. Because your prayers and your cries are pleasing before him. Well, the last picture here, that angel, he goes, he takes his censer, now that's emptied out, and he goes to that golden altar, 
right? That's blazing, blazing with fire, and he, you know, puts the sensor into the fire and shovels out some coals, some wood, and then he throws it down to the earth. And when he does that, uh, we see flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings, and an earthquake. Which, all right, if you've watched any of these supplemental videos, you might know, right? This is the signal that we've come to the end of the seven of this first seven sequence. At the end of the seven uh, seals, at the end of the seven trumpets, at the end of the seven bowls, we're going to have that exact phrase. There's going to be flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings, and maybe an earthquake. So we're at the end of the seven, and this is also indication that we've come symbolically to the end of history, right? We've come to the great day of the Lord. This first sequence of seven is wrapping up, and right, so we're coming to the end of history here, and we're going to start back over in the next seal, right? Because think about it, where have we seen flashes of lightning and heard peals of thunder before already in the book of Revelation? Chapter 4, where we were first introduced to the one seated on that throne. Right? What's coming from that throne? Flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. It's almost like any time God arrives or God right, is on the move and makes a presence in his creation, it's accompanied by flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings, and an earthquake. And this is not just in the book of Revelation, by the way. I might like think, again, throughout biblical history, when God shows up on Mount Sinai, to enter into covenant relationship with his people and to give them the law. Like, what happens? There's this thick darkness that envelops Mount Sinai, and there's flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. And the book of Hebrews says that the whole mountain shook like an earthquake. Okay? So again, just little interpretive points here, just so you know, we're at the end of this sequence, and we're at the close of this picture, which is painted for us a little behind the scenes of this whole span of time between Christ's resurrection and the future day of the Lord. Okay, uh, if you want to know more about that, go watch the supplemental videos, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> but here's the other thing that's accompanying the flashes of light and the peals of thunder, and it's these coals of fire. And that's often the other thing that accompanies God in his presence, in his creation. Right, again, think about that Exodus 19 and 20 when God descends to Mount Sinai. You not only have the flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and the earthquake, but the whole mountain becomes a blaze and fire. Or I think of like the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 1, when the prophet is sitting with the exiles in Babylon along uh, the banks of the Kibar Canal, and he sees this vision of God coming to be a refuge with his people in exile. And what does he see? He sees this throne on a chariot, he sees the four living creatures, and there's just fire everywhere. The throne is enveloped in fire. The four living creatures have fire coming off. And, and the one seated on the throne is just this blaze of fire. And so here it is at the end of history. It's the great day the Lord has come. And as God is coming to reclaim and to restore his creation, we're met with flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and these flames of fire which in this instance, it is a purifying fire. It's like a refiner's fire, right? Like if you wanted to take gold and you wanted to burn out all the impurities that might be in that gold and make it a more pure and precious metal, right? You would take it and you would put it in a refiner's oven. That's, you know, blaze at some 
ridiculous temperature so that the gold is melting. And what is happening is the impurities are coming to the surface and they can be whisked away so that what you have left, which then, you know, eventually cools, is this more purified gold or precious metal. Right? In that same way, when the angel takes these these coals and these flames that accompany God's presence and he casts it down to the earth, right? It's this purifying fire that is to burn away the impurities. It is to burn away all the sources and the causes of injustice and violence and warfare and everything that is not right in God's creation so that what might come out the back end is this perfectly refined, beautiful new creation where life can team once again in full beauty. Okay, which is great news for God's people. The people who have been suffering injustice and violence and have been crying out to God in their agony. It's great news for the people who know that, hey, I'm a sinner too. I'm a participant in all that's not right in God's creation, but I've entrusted my life to this lamb. I've dipped my garments Wash them clean in his blood, right? It's good news for them. It's not so much good news for those who have very little concern or regard for who, who God is. It's not those, it's not good news for those who refuse to honor God as creator or refuse to honor God as the one who still has ownership rights over his creation, and thus they would choose to live in that creation and take advantage of that creation in ways that are honoring to him. Or it's not good news to those who reject the notion that all people are created in his image and that he cares deeply for all these people, and thus in my relationships I ought to treat Others in ways that bring honor to him instead of just treating them however I want to on the whim of the moment or whatever. Or it's not good news uh, to those who would refuse to think that they are perhaps part of the problem. Or who would chafe at the notion that they are wretched sinners who need a lamb to come and sacrifice, lay down his life for their atonement and for their forgiveness. Right? But that's the picture. When this fire comes, purifies all that stands opposed to God, all that doesn't give him the time of day, all that refuses to acknowledge him and his rights as Lord and creator. And so here's the thing, right? If, if by chance that notion of God and his fires of judgment is somehow offensive or repulsive to you, uh, I get that. And there's probably a lot that we could talk about that. Uh, we don't have nearly the time to deal with all that today, but I might just say, that that might just be, one thing I would say to you is that might be because maybe you're living life in somewhat of a position of privilege or you're living life somewhat out of a position of power where you have the ability and you have the resources and you have the power to arrange life according to your liking. You have the resources, you have the power, you have the ability to to do life in a way that is pleasing to you. So you don't really need God to come and to fix things or refine things for your sake because you're doing quite fine without him. Okay, but if you look at this from the perspective of those who are suffering, who are suffering violence and wickedness and injustice and oppression, right, a God who isn't a consuming fire, that's not a whole lot of use to them. 
What kind of God would hear their pleas and not determine to come and be a consuming fire and wipe away from his creation all that is not right, all that is unjust, all that is oppressive and violent, so that his people might flourish? I would say, look, if you have any sort of sense or acknowledgement of the wrongs, the injustice, the evil, the, the brokenness of creation, and your God isn't a consuming fire who's going to one day purify all that, you need a new God. What's the point? But again, there's, let's put that aside because there's a lot more we could talk about that. The, the bigger or the closing image I want you to just walk away with is that these coals that are being cast to the, fire, to the ground, right? These are coals symbolizing the fire of God as he comes. But these are also coals that have been, do you, do you see it, like dusted with the prayers of God's people. In other words, the fire that's coming this refining, purifying, renewing agency that's coming out of heaven is this mix of right, the authority and the power and the working of God and the prayers of his people. Or to put it another way, that God in his wisdom and his sovereign intention has determined that his work of redemption and new creation happens in accordance with the prayers of his people. Or in other words, just put it simply, like your prayer, your prayers have have power. Which again, I think would have been incredible, you know, wonderful news for the ancient church. Right? The ancient church who's just suffering at the whims of the Roman Empire or the religious establishment. They have no voice. They wonder if anybody hears their cries. And they feel utterly powerless in the face of that. Like what 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 would it what was it? that kept them from just going utterly insane or that kept them from just constantly compromising to get out of their oppression, it was this conviction that their prayers mattered, their prayers were pleasing, and their prayers had power. Right, And I would think the same thing for you, especially in times of trial and times of hardship, when you don't understand why it is you're going through what you're going through, and you're wondering if anybody knows, if anybody sees, if anybody cares, right? I would think it would be encouraging to you to know that your prayers have been given space to be heard, are pleasing, and they come with power. I think it was third or fourth grade, uh, we wrote a letter to the president. It was probably Ronald Reagan back in the time. Uh, you know, as part of, I don't know, some assignment in third or fourth grade, and we sent it off. And my letter was probably full of who knows what, thanking him for keeping us safe or or maybe railing against the list of injustices that I feel like he should attend to. Like, how dare parents send kids to bed without an evening snack, even if they did say things that were inappropriate that evening or whatever? Like, come on, what a great injustice is that? Right, so anyway, you send this letter off, hoping it will get a hearing by the President of the United States. And sure enough, in a couple of weeks, what comes back? You get all these letters and envelopes that have the... Uh, you know, the address of the White House, 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Listen, oh boy, you open this thing up and you, <laughs> and you got a form letter there. <laughs> signed, probably not even signed, just probably stamped by somebody in the, you know, in the office there. And you realize in that moment, at a very young age, okay, my interests, my concerns, they have little to no effect in the Oval Office, in the circles of power in the world. Okay, but I mean, you just think about this concept though, that in the ultimate control center for the whole cosmos, right in the heavenly throne room. Like this picture that God would leave space for the prayers of his people to ascend, 
He would douse them with incense so that they're this fragrant offering and that he would act based on the prayers of his people. That's a staggering concept. Your prayers have power. You know, and I get it. There's this kind of, uh, I don't know what it's called, a movement or a tendency out there where in the face of injustice, especially the people outside of the church in the broader culture, they're tired of hearing, we'll pray for you. And I get that. Right? In the face of injustice and the wrongs and the evils that are being done in society, if all we offer is prayers, while we have power on our own to try to make changes and to work on behalf of the oppressed or whatever, if all we're offering is prayers, then yeah, I get their inclination to say, yeah, forget about it. Just keep your prayers to yourself. We'll do better without them. Okay, and I understand that. But at the same time, we dare not let that mentality seep in such that we would think that our prayers no longer have power. Or that what the really powerful stuff is when we get our hands dirty and, you know, we go to work. Yes, there may be power in that. The picture here is that your prayers have real power. And look, uh, you probably picked up already that, you know, as we're working through the book of Revelation, we're, we're, we tend to be taking big chunks at a time and you know, working through entire chapters. You know, but I decided for this one, I wanted to just slow it down. I wanted to just take these first five verses. In part, because I needed to be reminded <laughs> that prayer has power. Because when I get up and get going, right, the easy tendency can be that, hey, look, if I want to be the most effective and most efficient in my use of time, I just get right to work. And I pray maybe as I go, but to stop and to just spend an hour or so in prayer or whatever, that doesn't seem like a very effective or efficient use of my time, right? And I need that constant reminder that prayer has so much power. Prayer has the power to help align my will with God's will before I ever put my hand to the plow or get to work. Prayer has power to sustain my work and my enthusiasm and my service to God because I know it's being heard and I know it's a fragrant offering and I know there's power in it. Part of the message here is that prayer has power too because it's all intertwined with God's redeeming work and his work of new creation. So yeah, that's kind of the point. We put Jeffrey to bed uh, last night and as we often do, especially on Saturday night or Sunday night, we'll sing to him as we're going to bed. And one of Jeffrey's favorite uh, hymns, he doesn't know too many hymns, uh, is the the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So we're playing that, singing that to him. And it's just a great, great reminder. What a friend we have in Jesus. Good grief. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What a privilege we have to do that. My goal this morning is not to give you a guilt trip. It's not to uh, make you feel miserable about your lack of praying over this past week. There might be a time and a place for that. That's not my intention here this morning. My intention this morning is to see, do you see what a privilege it is to take everything to God in prayer. What a privilege it is that God would hush the praises, the rightful songs of celebration to him so that he can attend to your cries and to your pleas. What a privilege it is that you have a God who not just listens and not just tolerates and acceptance, but is pleased by your prayers. And what a privilege it is that your prayers have real power.
and your prayers are combined with the redeeming, renewing work of God in his creation. So may God lead you in the joy of praying. Oh, here's the, here's the closing hymn. Here's the closing uh, a verse of that hymn. Uh, help me out. My mind's my monitoring. Precious Savior, you have promised. All our burdens you will bear. So may we ever, Lord, be bringing all to you in earnest prayer. And soon, in glory bright unclouded, face to face will be our prayer. And joyful praise and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Right? It's until until that day comes, when face to face we can pray and celebrate and enjoy sweet worship. May we enjoy some of that here and now through the privilege of prayer, together, individually, and as a whole church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.